getting close to the end of Gospel of John, that this week and next week we'll be done with the book. Now, today, uh, there's, this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to the disciples. After the resurrection, he appeared two successive Sundays in a row, showed up when they were in Jerusalem, and right after the Passover. Now they've gone to Galilee to wait for him. He's promised to meet them in Galilee, and he tells them to go and wait for me, and this is, uh, this is what happens next. So if you would please stand. Uh, this is for the reading of God's word. Out of respect for the reading of God's word, we stand. Uh, and this is from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And so they went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you caught any fish? And they answered him, No. (laughs) And he said to them, Cast the net out on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment For he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. But Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, um, how you were able to say so much with these stories, these historical accounts that you have recorded for us and what they tell us about who you are, what they tell us about how much you love us, Lord. And so we pray that you would fill our minds uh, with the, the reality of how much you care for us and how much you love us, Lord, so that we might not stray into the trinkets and foolish things the world tempts us with. So Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us through your word, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I don't think we, we can't, it's hard for us to fully appreciate 
how frustrated these disciples must have been not catching any fish because for them, they were commercial fishermen. This was a commercial endeavor. They were, it was their livelihood. They were needing to, make, they were needing to catch fish in some, in some ways to make money. So for us to understand that, that frustration, we would have to like think about it in those terms. But they're, 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 there's at least some ways we can identify with them, right? Uh, there's nothing more frustrating than going on a fishing trip and catching no fish. For anybody, <laughs> anybody who's been fishing before, uh, there's nothing more frustrating than that. I went on two fishing trips this summer. Uh, the first fishing trip out, out in the ocean, we, went, we, we got on the boat at 10 o'clock and we went 50, 60 miles out into the ocean to catch fish and, and um, you wake up in the morning and you can't see land, you're way out there. The first trip, we caught absolutely nothing all day. It was, it was the most frustrating experience ever. The captain tried some novel idea, apparently. I don't know a whole lot about fishing. I went with friends who are experts. Um, but he tried some novel idea to get where fish were, and there's fish swimming under us all day, but nobody caught a single fish. Here, this is the, hi- the highlight of the trip. This will tell you everything you need to know about that trip. I finally figured out how to get the bait fish on my little hook and put them in the water. Finally got one to swim. Most of them, I'd put the bait hook in, and I'd crushed them by the time I got to the water, and he would just sit there in the water and not do anything. But this guy is finally swimming, and he's swimming, pulling the line out. He's about 100 yards out, and right about where he was, not kidding, two 100-pound bluefin tuna jump out of the water and crisscross in midair right over my bait fish and splash in the water. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but basically that's what happened total frustration. So I get how frustrated they were. If somebody, when we came in, somebody said, hey, did you catch any fish? That would have been, we'd have said more than no. <laughs> Second trip. This might have been even worse. Everyone's catching fish except me. I get the fish in the water, you know, and, and I, I get two bites and the, my line breaks. And then finally, uh, the captain, the captain of the ship comes over and offers to help me out. And the, my first response is No. I'm too prideful. I don't want his help. I want to do this myself. Really, what I wanted was I wanted the glory of the recognition of, being, of catching my own fish without any help because my friends were catching their own fish without any help. So my first thought was, no, how hard could this be? You, you know, it's, it's harder than it looks. You have to put the fish on the hook without touching the fish and then cast it 50 yards out. There's a lot, there's a lot to it. So finally, I said, okay, fine. <sighs> I would rather have the fish. And, uh, and so I, the captain helped me and was giving me instruction. He was staying with me while I was reeling it in. At the end, I caught a fish. I caught a fish because I listened. I stopped and I listened and I accepted the help. And, and um, what does that have to do with this story? <laughs> it's very similar. It's almost the same story here. The disciples are so much like we are. They have, um, they have seen the risen Lord twice. The risen Lord tells them to go to Galilee, and they go as instructed, and he tells them to wait. But really, they're there for a very short time when they kind of give up, and they think, well, I guess he's not coming, and they just they give up, and they, they go out on their own, and they go back to what they know. They go back to fishing. They decide to go it alone and go back to what they know. But little do they know, little do they know that Jesus has so much more for them more than they can possibly imagine. In fact, he hasn't even started yet. And the same is true for us. And so 
the big idea of this passage, what Jesus wants us to know more than anything else, is that when we are tempted to go it alone, Jesus reminds us that he is the source of power in life. When we're tempted to go it alone, Jesus reminds us that, we, that he is the source of power and life. Now let's consider that one part at a time. First, when we are tempted to go it alone, look at verse 1 through 3 again. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. There's a, there's a scene at the end of, of the series Band of Brothers when there's two officers, Major Winters and Captain, Captain Nixon, and they've fought together all the way through Germany, all the way through Europe into Germany. And um, at the end, when the war is basically over and they're deciding what to do, nobody knows what to do, Major Winters decides to go back to the hometown of Captain Nixon and go to work with his family in, in the, um, the Nixon Nitration Works. <laughs> To not go back to his own home, but to go and be with his brother that he's fought all the way through Europe with because they had formed this bond that was so close that after the war was over, after everything had calmed down, they just they still just wanted to be together. And that's what's happening with the disciples right now. The, the big guns of the Pharisees have stopped pretty much uh, the whirlwind of Jesus' ministry and uh, Going to Jerusalem has calmed down. It's, the war is over, and they have come back to, to Galilee. Even Nathaniel is with them. Nathaniel from Cana in the hill country, he's probably never fished in his life. Probably can't even swim. But there he is with these other disciples because they just want to be together. They don't know what's happening next. Jesus hasn't really told them. He's giving them little piecemeal information like he does, telling us just enough information that we need to know as we go along without ever giving us the whole story. But they want to be together. And Peter eventually, uh, they, so they finally, what happens here, what's happening is that it's after the Passover. They've gone back to Galilee. Jesus has promised to meet them. So this is between Passover and the Ascension, 40 days later. It's not a super long wait. But to read this in the Greek, it really has a more of a permanence to it. It's saying, Peter says, more or less, I'm going back to fishing. It's more than just killing time. They don't know what's going on. They're tired of waiting, and Peter decides, really leads these men into just going back to what they know. They're tired of waiting on the Lord, and they just go it out. They go on their own. Uh, and everyone follows him, and then what happens? These seasoned Galilean fishermen go out on the lake, and they get skunked. They catch nothing. <laughs> And they're frustrated as they're coming in. And, you know, this is a historical event, and, but, you know, in God's providence, he causes these things to happen to teach us these lessons. What's going on here? It's, it's, almost, it's, it's right on the surface. It's obvious. They are called to go back and wait, but they get tired of waiting on God. It's taking too long. And so they end up 
scratching it and settling for something else. They settle for something second best. And and the classic biblical example of this, Abraham and Hagar. God promises Abraham that through his seed, through his descendant, uh, all, these, all these wonderful blessings are going to take place and that through him, he's going to be his na- all these promises he makes to Abraham through this descendant. It goes on and on, 25 years, Abraham hasn't had a child and they decide, he and his wife decide, well, God must have forgotten or God must need our help and they get in there and they try to fix it by essentially, Abraham agrees to commit adultery with Sarah's maid and all, and all kinds of tragedy ensue from that awful decision. Some might say that we still experience today. There's so many ways that this plays out in our lives, but the big common denominators are this. We come to believe or, or we think that we, just, we have to have something a certain way or we have to have a certain thing or we or is equally likely we have to have a certain thing at this time on our time schedule could be something bad something we know that God says will ultimately hurt us and hurt others which is sin uh, and so we rationalize reinterpret the Bible we all go look for other people who have want to, to will confirm our what we want to believe could be good things could be things that, that something that we want something um, that's a good thing, but we want it right now. Something we think we deserve, and we think we have to and deserve it right now. And then what happens is we try to force it. We get in there somehow and try to force it and make it happen by our own power, right? Disclaimer first, this is not talking about uh, the, good and, and the good and useful thing of, of improving ourselves and, and working to better ourselves, that's all a good thing. But the red flags, the warning signs, is, is when we are trying to force it or when we are trying to make things happen against God's will on our own power are if we catch ourselves engaging in, in unethical means, if we find ourselves gossiping, against people that we think are holding us back, or if we find ourselves um, caught up in resentment against other people, thinking that they're the, they're the ones who are causing this problem for us. Or even worse than that, we catch ourselves angry with God, which is a resentment against God, because God does not understand that we need this thing right now, and so therefore he's holding us back. Uh, and then we get angry. The disciples are angry when they're coming in. No! <laughs> We didn't catch any fish. Now, some of you may be thinking, <laughs> funny thing about preaching is that when you, when you bring applications out, oftentimes it like, it, 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 there'll be people that come up to me afterwards and they're like, who told you? <laughs> who told you what I was dealing with? Who told you what I was going through? And the reality and then is that the Holy Spirit is convicting people, right? But this is such a common thing in our experience, in our human experience, that I could, and some of you may be thinking right now, he's talking about me, uh, and that's true, but, it, but, but also I'm talking about a lot of people because I could almost close my eyes and throw a rock in here and hit somebody who's dealing with this issue, including myself. It's so common that we get frustrated. We get, it's hard 
to have those desires and to be patient and wait on God. You mean some basic, broad, general examples. It could be the level of your career, your marriage status, the position of recognition, recognition that you desperately seek and want. The perfect house, your savings account. There's hundreds of things. Last night in our men's group, we talked about the American idol of success. And, and part of our discussion was, just, was to see how the definition of success is so different across different people, where you are on your station of life, um, who you are. But the common thing is that we decide that we have to have something and we have to have it now to be okay. And that desire is so powerful. It is so, it can be so powerful. It's so hard to wait on the Lord. In my personal examples in my life, there was two, two things that I remembered as I was going through this. Number one was in my early, early, early ministry career, uh, I was at a big, giant evangelical church, and I thought that I was ready to be a pastor, and I was ready to, I was applying for this job where I was going to be a pastor's assistant, and it was like a big move up in ministry, I thought. And I just set my heart on this. I thought God was telling me, you have the job, you've got the job, and then eventually I ended up, I didn't get it. And I was mad. I was angry at the man that I thought was supposed to, had the power to give me the job, and he didn't. I thought, you're wrong. I was mad at him and had resentments against him and started thinking, this guy who'd been in ministry for 30 years that I was, could do his job better than he could. And I got upset. Second thing was wanting to get married. I was in my early 40s. And I hadn't been married yet, and I really wanted to get married, and I thought to myself, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. And I would be angry, angry at God, angry at God because it didn't happen. And I thought I was all kinds of fears and anxieties going through my head, thinking to myself, who's going to want me, X, blah, 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 42-year-old, nobody's going to want me. It's not going to happen, and I'm mad at God. And there was time, I tried some of those, both of those things, I tried to force it to happen. I tried to force that job. And I tried to force relationships with, 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 with women that, uh, or tried to make things happen that would have been disastrous. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank you, God. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, that I did. <laughs> My brother was just over for dinner, and he told this story about when he was he was a, he was uh, cutting he worked for in the what do you call it he's a lumberjack he cut down trees and part of his job was he was on this path where they'd cut down all these trees and a crew above him decided it would be fun to kick this ten foot tall eight foot wide boulder down the hill and he was rolling through the brush he could hear it coming but he couldn't see it until the very last minute. And it really, he said, I had a split second to jump out of the way. And this boulder, like, literally went right by me. And my knees buckled, and I fell down thinking how close I just came to death and disaster. That's how it feels when I look back on what if God had not stopped me from doing what I thought I had to have and had to do. 
When the reality was I wasn't ready for that level of ministry, I would have made a mess of it and hurt myself and other people. There was things about me and my character that God needed to work out over time, and I needed to be satisfied in his providence and sit and wait as he went through that. And obviously, praise God, not too long after that, he sent Nisa, and who has been, I can't, I can't even count my blessings. And how good and faithful God has been to me in saying, no, wait. The truth of it is, we get tired of waiting and we settle and we try to settle for something less, something worse. The truth of it is, and the hard part of it is, is that sometimes God will let you fish. God will let you go out. Not out of, because, it, not because he loves us. Because sometimes you just need to figure that out. You just need to go out and fish on your own power and say, hey, this ain't happening. So that you can come in and say, okay, going on my own. It's not happening. It's not working. I need to be still and wait on the Lord. At the end of Psalm 27, David's a great example of this. He says, I know, I know in my heart that in the land of the living, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about now. And so, and so he says, take heart and wait on the Lord. Take heart and wait on the Lord. And the good news is that when we forget, point two, Jesus comes and reminds us that he is the source of all power. Look at verses four through eight. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. John is, uh, here's another example of John, the literary Jesus, picturing Jesus showing up just as the dawn is breaking, the disciples have been out just frustrated in the dark, in the cold, all night long, and then, and then all of a sudden, scene change. The sun is coming up, the light of the dawn is starting to break over the earth. The whole earth is beginning to be filled with light, and there's Jesus standing on the shore, offering to the disciples compassion, and power. He says, in the Greek, it really, there's, it says children, because that's who we are. We're children, we're God's children. But in the Greek, it really says, there's a negative. It says, he says, you haven't caught any fish, have you? <laughs> have you not caught any fish? Expecting and knowing, he knows the negative answer. He doesn't point that out to shame them. He just, 
He's pointing out the reality that we are just not built to be independent creatures deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. It, it doesn't work. Instead, we are built to be individual creatures, but connected by the Spirit to God as channels of divine power. That's our, that's our calling. That's our privilege. That's what God has for us. Way better. Way better. And power, Jesus exercises his power by directing them, throw the net off on the right side, and all of a sudden they catch this almost supernatural amount of fish. And John John figures it out. It, by, he, that's what cues him off. He sees this giant catch of fish and he's like, where have I seen this before? I know where I've seen this before. When Jesus called us to be disciples at the very first, he did the same thing and he realizes that it's Jesus. Let me read, let me read this. This is, the, this is what John is playing off of as he writes this part of, of, of his gospel. He's looking back and bringing to mind the calling of the disciples at the very first from Luke chapter 5. Listen, listen to this tale. Look, listen how similar it is. And on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats on the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And so getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So there's Simon, fisherman, never seen Jesus before. All of a sudden, he's sitting in the boat with him while he's teaching, probably having his mind blown. Uh, and then he gets finished teaching, and Jesus says, he says to Simon, Put out into the deep, let's go out to the middle of the lake, and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. But at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. See all the similarities to that story? John realizes who it is on the shore because of the miracle. But the important thing about this story is the difference. There's two things specifically that are, that are different. The one is, Peter, in the Luke story, they catch all the fish. The miraculous sign appears. He, noted, he realizes who, that Jesus must not be just a man. He's something other than that. And he falls on his knees in shame, but in the John story, same thing happens, and instead, Peter literally, instead of running, trying to run away from Jesus, he tries to run to him, swim to him. 
not even run to him. He just jumps in the water and starts swimming. His, his, his overwhelming desire is to go to Jesus. Even though his last interaction with Jesus was what? The three denials. He denied him three times. And yet he's running to Jesus as soon as he knows who he is. The second difference, a little less, is that in the first story, he's bringing them up, the nets are breaking. But in this story, even a bigger catch of fish, the nets are not breaking. And what's the big difference? What's the big difference between those two stories? It's what's happened in between. This is post-resurrection. This is post-crucifixion. The Lord Jesus has been crucified. Their sins, our sins, have been forgiven. He's been resurrected from the dead, vindicating him, assuring us of our standing with God, assuring us of our vindication before God, that we belong to Christ and that nothing, nothing will ever change. And because of that, now Peter, who was running from God, awash in that reality, is instead running to him. And Jesus is making sure that the nets are not breaking, the catch is secure, because we are the fish and we are safe in his will uh, to free and free to wait in patience on him, knowing that we're safe. We can be unashamed and we can run to him no matter how far afield we may have got. No matter how far, no matter how much you've gone out fishing on your own, no matter how much you've gone on your own, gone back to the old ways, and any, we don't have to do that. Because of our forgiveness, we can run to Christ. There are so many promises in this little passage that they're, all, it, it, they're almost hard to name. The first and the biggest layer, really, is this is a picture that God is giving us about building the church. That God is promising that he will build his church. That as we are obedient to the word of God, as we don't seek to make up our own inventions about how to do evangelism and how to do church, as long as we are obedient to it and listen to the direction of God, that he will build his church and we can trust in that. There's a lot of things we can do. One of the things that we corporately as a church do to fall into this error of heading out on our own is to, start, is to abandon what God's Word says about worship, what God's Word says about teaching, what God's Word says about doctrine and theology and what the gospel is and isn't, and come up with things that will bring a lot of people in, but aren't necessarily faithful to the Bible. We can build huge churches like that, but at what cost? At what cost? I had a, uh, saw a post from a, a well-meaning, evangelical, Christian, uh, parachurch organization, and they basically put a post up basically saying that faith... Was being able was was not being afraid and following your dreams in life. I mean, if your if your dream is to empty yourself and uh, to and to and to glorify God in your body, <laughs> come what may, then that that's true. But really, how it was presented was was that faith was was not the how it was not how we 
approached God. Our faith was not what we call in theology the instrument by which we grasp the external work of Christ, which means, let me translate that into English. What that means is we're not saved because of our faith, but our faith is the thing that's looking outside of ourselves to Jesus' finished work instead of our work. That's what faith is. And if we forget that, if we mess it up in order to build giant churches, it hurts people. People get crushed. We don't understand how safe we are in Jesus. The whole story of the Old Testament is about God's people slowly slipping out of worshiping God to worshiping self, not even knowing it. And so there's a warning to us in that. The promise is, God promises if we're faithful, he will build his church. Second layer is that building a life centered on Christ will be a beautiful thing. Um, if, as we trust in God's word, over and above our own desires, there's promises in here that over time we'll be successful, that we, over, that we will have security, ultimate security in Christ and our salvation, that we'll have access to Jesus and supernatural power through patience. And the, the big promise, the super counterintuitive promise in here is that obedience to Christ is the, is the wisest, smartest thing we can do. Because it's saying by what we're doing in, be, in obedience, what we're doing in waiting, what we're doing in trusting God over what our bodies, what our minds are trying to tell us is good, what that actually is is accessing the supernatural directing power of God and Jesus who we know loves us who we know wants our good and so it's a promise it's a promise and here here's the big caveat the ending thing about this section some people might hear this and say oh okay so what you're saying is I trust in God I'm going to get rich or I trust in God I'm going to get that thing that I need so, but think I need so bad that really it's just a waiting game. The waiting game itself becomes a manipulation to make God give me what I think I need so much of, right? I mean, this whole church is built on that idea too. That's not what he's saying. The big and the beautiful caveat to all of this, to faithfulness and obedience in God's favor is that God does promise to fill our nets. But what your full net is, you might not even know what that is yet. Part of obedience and part of waiting on the Lord is that process of God changing us and changing our hearts from these little self-centered destruction machines <laughs> into, into Christ-likeness and teaching us, uh, teaching us what is really, truly good and beautiful. There's a psalm, Psalm 37, it says, it, says, it says, basically, trust in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I love that verse because in my life, in my experience, what I found is at first, God had to show me what the true desires of my heart were. At first, they were very different things. When I, before I was a Christian, the desires of my heart were a very different thing. I used to read that verse and say, 
I know what the desires of my heart are, and I know for sure God has no intention of giving me those things. But after I became a Christian, after God starts working in our lives, what we desire, the desires of our heart begin to change into things that are more beautiful, into things that are glorifying God. And so the big and the beautiful caveat of that is that, yes, God is promising that he will fill our nets but it may be something that you totally don't even expect. It may, and whatever it is, is way better than what you want to force it to be. And so the wise thing to do is to wait and have patience. So point one, when we get tempted to go it alone, point two, Jesus reminds us that he is the source of all power. And the last part Jesus reminds us that he is the source of life. Look at verse 9 through 14. So when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? But they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is another one of those post-resurrection Stories where the, where the disciples seem to not recognize Jesus. At least that's what a lot of commentators say. When they say, I mean, basically the, the apostles or the disciples are saying, who are you? Commentators think that, that it's, one, it's another instance where they don't recognize Jesus. But the problem is, is that they've just seen him twice. They've seen him every Sunday for two weeks. So how is it that they can't recognize him now that they've seen him twice? And so some commentators, a lot of commentators say, this must have been an edit from another tradition that somebody came in and cut and pasted on the end of the gospel. But I don't think so. This is, let me tell you why. It's because of what they say. What they say is, it says once they get on shore and they're with him, It says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew that it was the Lord. It's a similar thing that happens in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus calms the storm. He's sleeping in the back of the boat and they come and wake him up. Teacher, don't you care that we're all about to die? And he gets up and calms the storm. And they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Matthew's version says, what kind of man is this? They're freaked out, not by what he looks like, but what he just did, who he is. We have a, we have a similar saying, right? If we're, say me and Brian are out driving around and we get, need a parking space, he gets out of the car and moves a car out from the meter so that we can park, I'm going to look at him and go, who are you? Not because I don't, he doesn't, I don't recognize what he looks like, but he's just done something that was way above what a man could possibly do, and I am freaked out about who he really is. I, if I even dared to say, who are you? That's what I would say. 
And remember the context. Last week, Thomas, we realized the doubter had just, by the power of the Spirit, by faith, he had penetrated the divine mystery and the Spirit had revealed to him the highest title of Jesus in all the Gospels. And he said, my Lord, Yahweh, and my God, Elohim. He's talking about Jesus in the same terms as the Old Testament talked about God himself. And so I think what's happening is they get it. They're sitting on the beach uh, and they know who he is. It's Yahweh, the Lord. (laughs) But they're eating breakfast with him. (laughs) Can you imagine just the cognitive disconnect, the freak out that that would be that you're sitting there you know, what could be more intimate than having breakfast together on the beach with family and yet at the same time, what could be more terrifying than being in the presence of what you know to be the holy creator God of all the universe? We can't even imagine that. But to know that to be true, of course no one dared to say anything. They were just freaked out. But I think that's exactly the point. That's what God wants us to see here. Are those two things together? That that is when we think about how. How are we going to make it through the hardships and disappointments in life? How are we going to make it through? How are we going to survive when even our own sinful minds and the desires of our bodies are against us? It's not through sporadic feats of holiness, which is where we commonly think about it, but it's through the everyday, intimate, close relationship that we have with God, the creator of the universe, who is our Father. Our Father. Intimate relationship. Who art in heaven. The creator of the cosmos. We are invited, really, And truly, every morning to wake up and have breakfast with him. To make our beds and sit on the end of it and say the Lord's Prayer and begin our day in communion with our Father, the Holy One, the God of the universe. And to to calm ourselves and and, and wait in patience in his presence throughout the day, in the little things, in the unimportant things. And just the every day, every, the, 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 the little intimate things of just having breakfast together, things like that throughout the day, throughout our lives. And over time, that presence begins to change our hearts. We start to desire different things. And then um, when we row our boats out, we row them out in the power and the protection of God And whatever it is that he shows us to be the desire of our hearts, he will fill our nets full of fish. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for um, your word to us. Lord, we confess that we are tossed about by waves. Lord, we are fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world. We see dimly by faith 
And sometimes, Lord, the truth is that we feel like you are so distant. And it seems, to, it seems that we might have relief from our suffering by settling for some lesser thing. Because we get tired, Lord. And it's hard to wait. But we thank you, Lord, you promise that you show up. Lord, that we belong to you. And even if we do row our boats out on our own, you promise to be with us in and through it and to return us safely so that we might see the futility of going at it without you, Lord, that you truly are the vine, that we are the branches, and that apart from you, we can do nothing. And that our true happiness is in our true our true joy is in being connected to you through the Spirit, not in being independent beings, deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong, but being connected to you and being channels of your divine power flowing through us and into the world, bringing blessing and light. And so we pray for that, Lord. We pray for all of us, all of us, every one of us here are struggling with this in one way or another. We have some temporary thing, some sensual thing. We think it's going to be the thing that fixes us, and it's not. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to wait, to be patient, to be with you as you are with us, to be in your word, to trust you, to be in fellowship, to receive the sacraments, to hear the gospel, and through these seemingly mundane means of word and water and bread and wine, you will bring life to us. And so we praise you, Lord, for that. Strengthen us. Help our unbelief. Help us to stay because we love you, Lord, and we know that you love us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.